This is The Guardian. Today, a Ukrainian military offensive is coming. But when and what will it look like? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I met this week with uh, Roman Kostenko, who is a special forces colonel and a senior Ukrainian military commander, and rendezvoused at a sort of secret location, followed his Range Rover through urban streets, and ended up in a field of, of rapeseed. Luke Harding is a senior Guardian foreign correspondent. A few days ago, he was taken to see a vital weapon in Ukraine's arsenal as it prepares for an offensive that everyone, including the Russian army, knows is coming. So Julian, what can we see? Just tell me, what is this thing? Okay, so so what we're looking at is a uh, Ukrainian attack drone, which is used to destroy Russian military equipment. But the, the, these are not drones from China, right? These are drones that you have made it's yourself. Information. Oh, okay. Yes. It's, our, it's Ukrainian product. U- Ukrainian product. Product. U- it's uh, made in Ukraine. And have have you been successful in the past? Very successful. There's a feeling of anticipation across Ukraine. Russian soldiers are digging in. Each day brings reports of new Ukrainian missile attacks deep behind enemy lines of Ukrainian commando raids and a nightly barrage of drone strikes on Russian targets. The drone rises into the air rather majestically, about 100 metres, and it drops first one and then two dummy anti-tank weapons onto tyres laid out in the form of an enemy tank. It was an interesting scene. And then that night, I watched the video. They, they dropped two bombs on a Russian armored fighting carrier, and it blew up. And, and you see, see sort of smoke pluming into the distance. And the, the Russian soldiers are very, very spooked by these, these raids and call these Ukrainian drones Baba Yaga, after the kind of witch um, from folklore who flies around on a broom. Very clever, very small, very deadly. The whole world is watching and waiting for an offensive to begin. But, Luke says, that could be a misreading of what we're seeing. That these new Ukrainian attacks and the work of drone units like this one are not a preview of the offensive. They might be its opening stage. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, Ukraine's spring offensive and its potential to redefine the war. (laughs) 
Luke, we're talking just days after the biggest attack on Kyiv since Russia's full-scale invasion last year. At the same time, people are consumed by this idea of a Ukrainian counter-offensive. For those of us who haven't been following day to day, bring us up to speed. Where are we in this war? I, I think the, the war in Ukraine has reached a pivotal moment. Last year, February the 24th, we saw Russia arrogantly sending in massive tank columns to seize Kiev to topple the government of Vladimir Zelensky to basically smash Ukraine and extinguish it as, a, as an independent state. Basically, they wanted to kind of recolonize it and make it a, a province of Russia. That was a grandiose project, an imperial project, and it failed. We, we saw a chaotic retreat from, from the Kiev region, from the north of Ukraine. And then what we saw last autumn were, were two stunning and successful Ukrainian counteroffensives, uh, one in the south, recapturing Hezon, where I've been this week, city on the Dnieper River, and another in Kharkiv Oblast in the northeast. Something that seemed unthinkable two months ago. Kherson is back in Ukrainian hands. Russians rolled into the city at the beginning of the war, never intending to leave. The counterattacks so stunning, Russian troops fled, leaving behind a warehouse full of ammunition. And meanwhile, Russia kind of grinding on, uh, changing its focus to the Donbass region and the city of Bakhmut, which the Russians have spent 10 months trying to seize. But recently, in the last few days, their flanks have collapsed. And they've actually managed to push the Russians back a few kilometers. Tonight, the most significant advance for Ukraine in six months. Dramatic drone video showing Ukrainian forces storming Russian positions near Bakhmut, taking land to the north and south. The thing is now, it's not clear who is winning this war. Is it Russia with its kind of mighty, but perhaps sort of inefficient and slightly dysfunctional army? Or is it Ukraine, which is nimbler and has seen an injection of kind of Western weapons and tanks in recent months? And I think the expectation is that it's up to the Ukrainians to, to show the world and possibly even themselves that they can win this war and there is a path to victory. Mm. And why now? Why do we expect the offensive will happen in the next few months and not, say, later this year? This is definitely a, a window for the Ukrainians. And um, uh, partly it's, it's summer. It, it's the weather. I mean, I, I've just got back to Kiev. People are wearing shorts. Trees are blooming. Birds are singing. The days are filled with light. And of course, the terrain is dry, which means that Ukraine can move forward in a way that's not possible when it's muddy. And moreover, Russia's own general offensive, which was much bruited and, and began in January and, and, and February, has gone nowhere. So the, the moment is now, I mean, by next winter, it's going to be too muddy and difficult. So we're really looking at the next four months. Luke, you've been on the ground spending time not just with drone squads, but with frontline soldiers. Are you seeing and hearing things that suggest pieces are being moved into place, that a counter-offensive might be taking shape? Well, I, I mean, you can feel it in the air. There's been so much talk about a counter-offensive, but actually, depending on how you kind of understand it or conceive it, it's already started. What the Ukrainians are doing, as far as I understand it, is trying to sort of disbalance the Russians. It's step by step. It's not shock and awe. It, it's attritional. It's corroding the enemy to essentially sort of degrade Russia's military capacity, its potential. And that means knocking out weapons depots. It means destroying fuel dumps just, just to try and kind of really soften up the, the Russian front line. So I mean, I am not General Zeluzhny, 
Valery Zaluzhny, the chief of Ukrainian general staff. But it seems to me this is like an orchestra about to play a, a, a big and complicated Wagner opera. And they're, they're warming up. You, you, can, you can hear the, 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 the drums, you can hear the cymbals beginning to crash. And uh, soon there's going to be an awful lot of noise. When I think of Ukraine's big counteroffensive, I imagine a huge advance across the country, tanks and columns of troops rolling through fields and cities, something like Ukraine's offensive last year to take Kherson. Is that the kind of offensive we should be expecting? Uh, no. Definitely the Ukrainians will want to go forward. I mean, that, that, that's absolutely true. They, they can't just wait for the Russians to give up, leave their trenches, pat their bags and go, go home. They have to be evicted from occupied territory. But I think that the model of the kind of the Russian model, actually, of the, the vast forward column is not going to be how the Ukrainians do it. Last autumn, the Ukrainians, they, they were sort of super clever. I mean, I mean, they did a kind of one-two. Basically, Zelensky said, we are going to liberate Kherson. And they launched a sort of counteroffensive in the Kherson direction. And the Russians then pumped loads of troops into Kherson. And meanwhile, actually, the, the real offensive or the first offensive took place in Kharkiv Oblast, where no one was expecting any offensive and the Ukrainians had figured out the Russians were quite weak. And that, that was breathtakingly successful. They liberated an area the size of Wales in about six days. Now, I don't think that is going to be, we're going to have a repeat breakthrough in quite the same way. Um, firstly, because the Kremlin has mobilized 300, 400,000 guys. So there are a lot of bodies there. But also the Russians have had time to, to, to dig in. The Russians have constructed the biggest and most entrenched fortifications that we've seen anywhere in the world for decades. They have dug anti-tank ditches, which are uh, six meters across and three meters wide. They have mined everything. They have mined the whole of the Zaporizhia front line, about 900 miles from, from south to east. It, it's the, the calculus, I think, is, it is partly about casualties. You know, What is an acceptable number of Ukrainians to die to liberate this territory? which I think is most concerning Zelensky, and he talked about this last week. Mentally, we're ready. In terms of how motivated our military are, we're ready. In terms of enough personnel in our brigades, we're ready. In terms of equipment, not everything has arrived yet. We can advance with what we've got, and I think we can be successful, but we will lose a lot of people. I think that is unacceptable. We need to wait. We need a bit more time. So there's the, the question of casualties and there's also the kind of the kind of political question that if the offensive fails or, or falls short, whether Ukraine's Western partners in Washington or Berlin or, or, or Brussels will say, look, this hasn't worked. It's time for you to sit down with Vladimir Putin and carve out some kind of deal. Hmm. So then if it's unlikely to be this grand sweeping advance for all the reasons you've laid out, what kind of counteroffensive do we expect will materialize? What I imagine will happen is multiple attacks, essentially. I would expect them to push in the east, and I would expect them to try and do something in, in Hezon province as well. But I think the main thrust, actually, sooner or later, the hammer blow has to come in Zaporizhia, in the southern Zaporizhia region. It's the obvious place for Ukraine to attack. The Russians know this, but nonetheless... What the Ukrainian army will seek to do is to, is to, to split 
the land corridor, which which joins currently occupied eastern Ukraine with Crimea and occupied Hezon and Zaporizhia. Now, if they can do that, then that means those sort of territories become a kind of island and that whole area is isolated. And what they don't need to do at that point is to storm everything. What they can do is slowly strangle the Russian position, make it unfiable, so the Russians cave. I think that ultimately is the grand ambition. The one thing we've learned from this war more than a year on is the Ukrainians are, are, are really ingenious. I mean, Zeluzhny, the, the chief of general staff, is a commander of extraordinary brilliance. And I suspect he has something up his sleeve. The fact that Ukraine has survived to this point has been down to their bravery, their ingenuity, but also the Western weapons and training that they've been receiving for the past few years, and especially since the full-scale invasion last February. On previous episodes, we've discussed the delivery of tanks and the role they might play on the battlefield. And just last week, the UK confirmed it was going to give Ukraine long-range missiles called Storm Shadows. Storm Shadow is a long-range, conventional-only precision strike capability. The donation of these weapon systems gives Ukraine the best chance to defend themselves against Russia's continued brutality. How will that new equipment, and especially those new British missiles, come into play in this counteroffensive? Well, these long-range cruise missiles from the UK, there's been an awful lot of excitement in in Kiev about them. I mean, practically you get 20% off your restaurant bill if you're saying you're British <laughs> at the moment. Um, the reason this is so important is, is that last summer, the Ukrainians got HIMARS, which is the sophisticated American system, but it had a range of 80 kilometers. So they were able to advance the Ukrainians last autumn because they pulped forward Russian positions near the front line and then were able to kind of move forward, particularly in the, the right back of Hezon province. The problem is that the Russians have now shifted everything further back out of range of, of HIMARS. And these British missiles are potentially kind of game changers because it means that the whole sort of eastern part of the country and the deep southern part of Ukraine is in range as well. And I get the sense that the Russians are pretty terrified, actually, about where this might go. Luke, you've given us a sense of the strategy that Ukraine might pursue, but tell me about the state of its army. What kind of shape are they in? And do you think that they have the capacity to carry out the kinds of plans that are being drawn up? I think that the Ukrainian army is in as good a shape as it's ever been. And if there were parity between Ukraine and Russia on the battlefield, then I had no doubt the Ukrainians would, would win pretty quickly, actually. They, they don't have parity. The Russian military monster is still way bigger than the Ukrainian one. Uh, and what we're seeing is well-trained, Western-trained Ukrainian soldiers, highly motivated, fighting, as they will all tell you, for their homes, for their families, for their girlfriends, for their kids for their country, for their way of life, for their language, for their culture, up against poorly trained, unmotivated Russian troops and conscripts, many of whom don't want to be there. Well, what is the state of the Russian army right now? Well, the the, the Russian army seems to be eating itself from inside. And there does seem an awful lot of food feuding. I mean, the the kind of key personality here is Yevgeny Prigozhin, this, this oligarch who presides over a, a really quite kind of large and formidable mercenary organization called Wagner. And Prigozhin is actually in the battlefield. I mean, he really is there. He does these, these videos where he's standing in front of 
25, 30 dead Wagner mercenaries ranting at the Russian Ministry of Defense, complaining about his guys not getting enough ammunition. I am officially informing the defense minister, chief of the general staff, and the supreme commander-in-chief that my guys will not be taking useless, unjustified losses in Bakhmut without ammunition. I mean, for all of their kind of poor battlefield tactics and their embarrassing sort of micro-retreats we've seen this week, they still have thousands of tanks. I mean, most of the new ones have been knocked out, but they've got a lot of old tanks. They have enormous amounts of ammunition. And, and there was a lot of speculation a while ago that they were going to run out. They haven't run out. And they have manpower. They have practically unlimited manpower. So whatever shape the Ukrainian operation takes, the counteroffensive, it has to be nimbler, more sort of smart, just, just cleverer than anything the Russians can do. I mean, I've seen those videos of Prigozhin sounding off in Bakhmut and heard reports of the kinds of divisions you see in the Kremlin. What kind of political pressure do you think it puts Vladimir Putin under? The bottom line is the war is not going very well. I mean, the Russians thought, Putin thought, genuinely thought, that the invasion would succeed in a matter of days, that Kiev would fall, the government would be removed, and Ukraine could be transformed pretty quickly into a friendly Slavic state run by puppets. That was the plan. That was the expectation. And it isn't working. And even Russian propagandists are are beginning to acknowledge that. The annual military parade, which celebrates the Soviet Union's triumph over Nazi Germany, was significantly scaled back this year. There was only one tank, and it was from World War II, and there was no flyover of fighter jets or bombers. You know, it's it, it, it's curious. I mean, he, here on, on paper, at least, is the second mightiest army in the world, the Russian army. And yet, after a year of losses, after horrendous casualties, after a lot of dysfunction, the Russians, it seems, actually are, are beginning to realize that they might lose this war. Coming up, what success would look like in this offensive and what failure could mean for Ukraine? Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by Better help. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online 
and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Luke, it's too simple to imagine that this campaign could bring a quick and satisfying end to this terrible war. But how do you think Ukrainians would define a successful offensive? What would that look like? I I think they have to take back at least one major city or an area of territory and push the front line back 40 or 50 miles. That would be a success. If if they could actually break the land corridor, that would be a spectacular success. I mean, I I think... I think that's going to be hard, uh, both because of the Russian fortifications that we've discussed, but also because of Russian air power. I mean, unless you neutralize air power, you can take territory, but you're in danger of them being annihilated. I was talking to a very interesting guy called Dmitry um, Letanchuk, who's he's, he's a major and a press officer. And I sort of said, what do you think victory looks like? And he said, the complete defeat of the Russian military, the complete defeat. And there's a sort of understanding that unless the monster is, is really smashed, that the monster will come back. So the Ukrainians have to go forward. They have to demonstrate success. And I'm not sure they're capable this summer of of destroying the monster, but they, they have to rip at least one of its arms off. For the first time since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, is visiting Germany. Germany has just announced its biggest sum of military aid to Ukraine yet, $3 billion. That's about £2.4 billion. Over the past few days, Zelensky has been on a diplomatic offensive. Visiting Berlin, he met Rishi Sunak in London. For me and for our team, it's a privilege that you host us here today, Rishi. And thank you and your government for supporting us. Clearly, the way this spring offensive is going to be viewed in those capitals and others is a big part of this campaign. What do you think Ukraine needs to do on the battlefield to keep its allies invested in the long term? Well, I mean, I think as a minimum, the Ukrainians have to show their international partners that all of this Western kit was not for nothing. If all of this expensive kit is destroyed on the battlefield by Russian aviation and there are huge Ukrainian casualties, then this would be problematic because it would suggest that that really the Ukrainians can't win this war and therefore... There has to be some kind of settlement. And nobody in Ukraine, not politicians, not civilians, not soldiers, no one wants a bad deal. Hmm. So Zelensky has to manage expectations, make sure nobody expects the war's ending anytime soon, but also do well enough that leaders in these capitals say, these guys are worth betting on. They can do this in time. In the bigger story of this conflict, how important are the next few months? I think the next few months are crucial, that they will show where this war is going, which side is going to win. Is it just a sort of doomed, romantic, naive adventure on the Ukrainian side? And are they just going to kind of run up against the might of Russia, which in the end, for all Ukrainian valor, for all of their storytelling powers, for all of their international support, falls short? Or are we actually going to see the greatest and most unexpected 
military victory of the 21st century mm. uh what with a with a country that basically everyone wrote off pretty much in february of last year in those dark early days of invasion when it looked like the ukrainians really didn't have a chance we've seen it fight back fight for its survival we've seen a what you might call a national awakening we've seen everybody from old ladies to young people to volunteers supporting the war effort and and we've seen a rejuvenated west that has actually given ukraine heavy armor tanks long-range missiles to go forward but the the clock is ticking everyone knows that including vladimir putin and putin is basically betting that the west the uk america in particular with with you know trump possibly coming back in 2024 that, that, that they will grow tired of this conflict. I mean, you already have the kind of American first Trump wing of the Republican Party, you know, signaling that they don't want to support Ukraine anymore. Trump unable to say who is to blame for this war. I'll meet with Zelensky. They both have weaknesses and they both have strengths. And within 24 hours, that war will be settled. It'll be over. It'll be absolutely over. Do you over. want Ukraine to win this war? Uh, I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all these people and breaking down this, this country. So, so Putin is going long. I think he is prepared to fight for a year, two years, five years. I mean, he, he is thinking in messianic terms about his role in history, how he shapes up with Peter the Great or Stalin. And also, he doesn't care how many people die. Whereas for Ukraine, by contrast, every death is a tragedy. Um, it's a smaller country with fewer resources. And so they want victory sooner, not later. So given that's the equation facing Ukraine, this sense of go now or never. What's the mood like among Ukrainians as they prepare for a period that they know is going to be bloody, but has the potential to turn the tide of the war? I think the feeling is, is, is quite optimistic. No, nobody is under any illusions as to, as to what's at stake. Mykolaiv, a city where I was last week, when I first went there, it was being, it was being smooshed. It was being bombed all the time by Russian artillery. And now, now the front line has been pushed back. There are restaurants, there are kids, that there are schools have reopened. There's a sense of normality. I, I think there is overwhelming faith in the Ukrainian army. There is overwhelming faith in Valery Zaluzhny, the, the chief commander. There is massive support for Zelensky. Uh, even people who didn't vote for him uh, three years ago recognize he's done a good job in attracting international support. And there's been this extraordinary reskilling by Ukrainians. I mean, I mean, most of the people fighting are not professional soldiers. They are taxi drivers, they are car mechanics, poets, engineers, ballet dancers, sports stars. I mean, this, this drone unit I saw, the chief drone engineer who's called Julian, he used to fly drones and drop pesticides on fields of corn. And now he's dropping munitions on $2 million Russian tanks. And there is a sense that Ukraine has turned into this extraordinary super organism where everyone is fighting Russia. And that's why I'm confident sooner or later the Ukrainians will prevail. They, they cannot lose this war. The question really is the shape of victory. Does, does victory mean everything back to their borders when Ukraine became an independent state in 1991? Or does it mean most of it? And, and we'll know more in about three months' time. Luke, thank you very much. Thank you. 
That was Luke Harding, a senior Guardian foreign correspondent who's reporting from Ukraine you can find at theguardian.com. You can also find his book on the first year of the war called Invasion at guardianbookshop.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Eli Block. Sound design was by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers were Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.